Hello, friends. Welcome back for part two of my conversation with Dave McLeod. In part two, we talked about Dave's book, Nine Out of Ten Climbers Make the Same Mistakes. We talked about why he wrote it and what mistakes or pitfalls from that book that he would highlight from continuing to observe climbers over the last decade since that book was published and what area he is most focused on in his own climbing from that book. We also talked about how Dave uses flexible programming to fit in his training around the weather in Scotland. We talked about his current carnivore diet experiment, why he is doing it, and how it is going. And I asked Dave for his thoughts on ketogenic diets for glycolytic sports, like sport climbing. This is something that I've tried and struggled with in the past, and Dave was able to shed some light on where I likely went wrong with my own ketogenic diet experiment. I want to own something that I said in this episode. I was telling Dave a little bit about my own nutritional journey and lamenting how complicated all this stuff is. And I said at one point that I had likely spent thousands of hours learning about this stuff. I realized as I listened back that that is likely an exaggeration. But the point I was making holds true. I was obsessed with the nutrition topic for years and would often listen to podcasts and audiobooks and read research articles about ketogenic diets, ancestral diets, if it fit your macros diets, carnivore diets, vegan, vegetarian diets for hours per day as I sat in my little cubicle. So I have likely spent hundreds of hours exploring this topic. And if I've learned anything, it is that it is incredibly unclear what is best to do for our performance and health simply from reading the research. It is a super complicated topic and one without any room for dogma, in my opinion. So I really appreciate Dave's insight on this topic and encourage any of you who are interested to take all of this with a grain of salt and to experiment for yourselves if your current way of eating isn't working for you and to keep doing what you're doing if you found something that does work for you. I myself have learned a lot from experimenting on myself and I really like where I've landed with my own diet and it seems to be working really well for me, at least for now. But I will save that for another episode. Let me know if that is something that you would be interested in hearing about, and I would be happy to share more about that. In part two, we also tackled quite a few patron questions. Thank you to everyone who submitted those. We didn't get to all of them, but we did cover a lot of ground. I got quite a few questions about Dave's nutrition research that he did for his master's thesis. And if you want to hear more about that, I would recommend an interview that Dave did with Mina on the Curious Climber podcast, and I will link to that in the show notes. Some of the topics we covered in the Q&A in this episode included thoughts on improving as we age, piles of eggs, balancing strength to weight ratio with the slippery slope of disordered eating, recommendations for new parents, Scottish climbing crags, recommendations for injury-prone climbers, and a lot more. This was a really good episode. Thank you all for tuning in today, and please enjoy part two with Dave McLeod. 
All right. I would love to switch gears a little bit to another topic that I was most excited to talk to you about. And it goes back to the first book that you published, Nine Out of Ten Climbers Make the Same Mistakes. And it's a book that mm -hmm. I have read many times, and it's one of just a handful of books that have actually made it into the van that I carry with me. <laughs> it's basically cool. just that book and uh, some guidebooks that I have in the van. But it's um, if people haven't read it or are not familiar, I highly recommend it, and I'll link to it in the show notes. But first off, I have some questions about it in particular, but I would love to just ask simply, why did you write the book? Um, where were you? at the time and, and what was it that you were noticing in mm. other climbers that led you to want to write this book in particular? Yeah, well, I mean, that's quite a long time. There, in 10 years ago, I, I wrote it. Um, and in the, the years preceding that, I was traveling around the UK quite a lot, doing coaching sessions with a lot of climbers. I really was doing quite a lot of climbing coaching at that time. And I mean, I, I remember just having conversations with climbing friends and, and my wife as well and saying, you know, I really am just saying the same things to to climbers. <laughs> um, and a lot of it, I, I noticed that a lot of the aspects were people would ask me about details of training and people still do ask me about details like as you have been about, yeah. you know, fingerboarding, <laughs> like should you yeah. fingerboard with a bent arm or, or a straight arm? And many of the questions that were like that about detail, I would think, well, okay, I can think about that question and maybe I can answer it. But also I'm not sure if that's, is that the most important thing? Mm. <laughs> it's in observing climbers, what the theme that was emerging was that the things that seem, seemed most important to me were often completely hidden or not even things that they would worry about. <laughs> Or, or, or think about that much or see that, that they were clear clear weaknesses. Can you give a couple examples of that? I mean, one that I talk about a lot in the book is, is fear of falling. I remember having many coaching sessions with climbers who were very eager to ask me about details of training and like how they could refine their program. Like, you know, how can I tweak my endurance sessions to be slightly more effective? How how should I do my fingerboarding? All of these details. And we'd be climbing on the rock and, and I'm just thinking, finger strength and endurance is not your problem. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I, I recall like one example, like um, having a few sessions with, with a climber and her goal was to climb her first 13B. And at first I was watching her climbing on the climbing wall and for the first time you know the first kind of hour and inside my head I was like I don't really understand I don't understand like she's strong enough to climb 14b hmm. this is obvious like she can move really well and her fingers are strong as steel <laughs> like this this can't be the problem like that you know because her goal for the the meeting was to find out how to get strong enough to climb 13b and i'm just immediately saying you seem 
more than strong enough, like hmm. far more than strong enough. This can't be the problem. But as soon as we went cl- actually sport climbing, it was just immediately apparent that as soon as her waist went above the boat, it was as if she was soloing. Wow. She was climbing as if she was free soloing. And I was like, well, yeah, this is this is where we need to focus. So it's things like that where, um, and it, it, you know, there's, there's, there's obviously so many different aspects. For some people, it was just movement technique. They were just not seeing the the obvious way. <laughs> like they would miss the knee bar. Or they would miss that you could match the hold in that way and just the small details of sequences. So in a lot of people, it was attention to detail in their in their technique and getting more weight on their feet on steep ground, that kind of thing. So, But stepping back another layer, I could see that in general, these were like more behavioral things than details. It was more about the general approach uh, to, to learning climbing. So like, for example, in learning technique, I always think of it um, the goal is to try to understand climbing and to understand anything you're trying to immerse yourself in it and look at it from lots of different angles and really value your understanding and being able to make connections between different facts in a subject in general so applied to to rock climbing you think well why do you place your foot on that part of the foothold and why do you turn when you when you did that attempt and you were on the crux and you turned your knee in slightly that way or turned it out slightly, why did that help? You you observed that it helped, but it's understanding why it helped is key, and that sort of hunger to to understand that is like is really key, and that's more of a, a kind of behavioural thing. Hmm. And if you get that right, then all the rest of the things fall into place. And so that was my sort of observation of comparing the kind of high level climbers that I'd seen and looked up to with climbers at a much lower level who were either beginners or not beginners, they were experienced, but still at a low level. Like what are the differences between these two people? And so I came up with all these themes, which, and and they're just kind of listed in nine out of 10 climbers. And the book is in a kind of almost like a blog style where it just kind of goes through all of these examples. And the idea of it was to try and get people and keep people on the right track of of what makes the differences so it's like setting the right habits that allow you to both continue to get strong but also to stay healthy and learn good technique and all of these things hmm. and yeah so that the, that style of approaching training seemed to kind of resonate with people in a way that actually i wasn't expecting huh. <laughs> I, I didn't really realize that um that people could connect with it so easily, uh, but but they did, which is fantastic. Yeah. Hmm. I would love to ask, so you wrote that book a decade ago. Is there mm-hmm. anything that you would edit or change? Like if you had to do a second edition of the book, hmm. is there anything that you would add after the last decade of observation? Oh, uh, almost certainly, yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> okay. I, I don't, I don't think I would actually add that much. I would probably just, just um, write, write another, another book. I think the one of the, the the nice things about nine out of ten climbers is it is quite a small book. So, uh, another observation I made was that in many cases, like 
there was one or two single things that were huge weak areas in individual climbers and you could you know you didn't need to write a whole training program you could write it on a post-it note (laughs) (laughs) it's like that example i just gave you it's like sort out the fear of falling yeah (laughs) and you're you're sorted you know you're going to be brilliant at climbing yeah you've got everything else dialed like you're really like kind of tinkering at the edges of the, the real details of you've got almost everything right but you've got this huge thing that to fix and if you mm. get that then you'll just be flying mm. um so i quite like that the the book is quite small and focused on that aspect and it hopefully helps people to think about all oh, their own climbing and think well they might read through it and think well yeah okay that aspect i can kind of do that i relate to all these things i already understand that i've got that and then they come to some part of it where they go, oh, yes, that's the weakness. It's kind of, that speaks to me that I, I know I do that and that's that's bad. Mm. And then that hopefully focuses you to, to sort of face that head on and address it. So I'd probably um, just, just write something else rather than add to it. <laughs> okay. But I guess in part because I'm, you know, I've got older myself. And I've appreciated more just how much just being generally healthy is critical for performance. Because I've gone through all that period of thinking about training and how to train and then dealing with injury as all athletes do sooner or later and having multiple injuries and trying to understand how to treat injuries when they arrive. And then... You know, as as any athlete gets older again, they they start to value more and more that that health is the foundation for everything. And if you have that right, then you're kind of you're you're a lot more bulletproof. Mm. <laughs> you know, you 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 can really have you have resilience because what you're at you're asking your body to do these exceptional things year after year after decade after decade, and you you accumulate battle scars which will you'll have to carry with you um and sometimes they can be pretty significant so the 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 more health you've got that's like the foundation and then you can cope with so much if you have that in place and so as time's gone on i've appreciated more that more and more um and so in in the all the stuff that i've put out online and you know if i was to write anything again it would be more lifestyle based okay because i think as we've been talking about the details of training i mean there's no doubt that this these small details they they matter they have an effect but i still wonder if like instead of worrying about like protocols and grip types for fingerboarding if people just worried about getting really high quality sleep that that Hmm. would have a bigger effect (laughs) Mm-hmm. you know yeah so uh, i'm sort of more thinking along these lines these days um so i guess like you're you know with all these aspects it's like you're you're filling in all the gaps all the ingredients are there and then you have everything you need to to reach your potential so you highlighted fear of falling if you had to highlight a couple other most common trends or, or pitfalls that you see climbers make from the book. Are there any others that come to mind as, is the most common traps that people fall into? That's, that's kind of tricky. Cause I do think that they are quite different between climbers. 
Um, you know, there's so many different tendencies among climbers. Um, I mean, I, I must admit, like, did I even speak about this as much in, in climbing? I think I did, really. I mean, one aspect that I sort of observe from... Because, like, I do my reading and observing in, like, these different areas. Like, I, I read a lot of raw research in training, health, lifestyle, all these things. I also read a lot of training content in climbing and in other sports and I'll, you know, just listen to discourse and I'm thinking about that all the time. So there's all these different things. Um, and so sort of aware that there's a strong cultural influence in so many aspects of how we train in our sport. And we take that from trends in, in other sports. And you can see that it's like, like think of things like um, rings and just general body calisthenics they've become massively popular in climbing as they have done across many other sports. There's lots of sports across the board. The runners are, you know, they're doing a lot of basic strength training. That's all great. It's brilliant. I think it is beneficial for them. But there's a lot of sort of influence of, of, uh, sort of fashions and cultures and they don't always align nicely to people's own weaknesses. Mm. Um, so that it's like having that objectivity to really see whether like something that you're reading about that has given someone else benefit, would it really be of great benefit to you? Well, that depends on your weaknesses. So I think a point I made in 9 out of 10 climbers was to try and use your climbing partners as a mirror mm. to both compare um, how you claim on certain moves, like is there a move that they can all do that you can't? Why is that? Try to understand that. Don't just let that observation pass or just kind of go, oh, well, that's just me. Like, why? Mm. <laughs> but also ask them, you know, try to... They, they can be brilliant coaches because they they know your, your weaknesses very well because they've observed you climbing for a long time. And hopefully if they're, they're good friends, they're not afraid to just tell you if you ask them. <laughs> <laughs> like you know what if if you were me what would you do they might well know as well as any coach <laughs> hmm, interesting <laughs> just just because they've observed you for a long time uh-huh. yeah and and they, and they might well say to you something like um you just give in too easily or mm. you know you think you can only climb 8a but we all know you can climb 8c <laughs> <laughs> It might be something that's as general as that, mm-hmm. but really, if you started to change that mindset and you started to say, "Well, okay, that's that's what I'm going to identify with," I always thought that with projects is like the best way to guarantee success on a project is to identify with doing it, <laughs> and then everything else flows from that. Hmm. But if you don't start off with that, where you're like, "I need this. This is me. <laughs> I am going to do this." That's a risky place to put yourself because you then open yourself up to the possibility that you might fail or you might spend a ridiculous amount of time trying to get there. (laughs) And that's quite scary. But it's also the shortcut to actually getting there. Um, Hmm. or Or, you know, climbing friends might have something far more practical to say. Like, you know, the problem is like, you've got too much on your plate and you're just not 
you don't have enough time to train. I oh, mean, so okay. many, so many people like write to me all the time, and they ask me about training, and you know, they, a lot of people are very limited for time or resources to train, and it just strikes me that a lot of people could just have a, a change of lifestyle that could be like as you've done, you know, living living in a van at Waco Tanks. <laughs> it's like you wouldn't need to do anything else. You just move out of the city, live in a van next to Waco Tanks, your level will increase, surround yourself with good climbers. And I mean, that's a point I made in 9 out of 10 climbers as well. Like if you go to a climbing wall where everyone climbs 8C, you'll climb 8C. <laughs> <laughs> or vice versa you know it could be the same for a much lower grade and mm. you see there's all these sort of influences that are that are there that are kind of hidden and and hopefully that book just helps you to to notice them and see them for what they are and then change them if you can yeah <laughs> are there any mistakes from the book that you still catch yourself making Oh yeah, many all the time. Um, Any common pitfalls? Um, well, I, I guess like a constant bugbear is the quality of rest. Okay. Like having good good quality rest is very difficult, and in our modern lifestyle that we're all kind of going through, it's just getting harder and harder. Um, yeah. There are so many calls on our attention and it's very, very easy to spend vast amounts of time staring at a screen trying to absorb huge amounts of information. <laughs> um, and it's and, and that can be both distracting from thinking about things, other things that you could be thinking about that are beneficial for your performance, or it can just be detrimental to your sleep, just straight up sleep. Just hmm. It's just lowering the quality of your rest. And that means that if you do the same amount of training, it's more likely to get you injured or you're less likely to ha to respond well to it than if you just do the same amount of training with better quality sleep. <laughs> hmm. uh, so that, I mean, that's, that's a huge issue for me because um, like I just, I'm just busy like everyone else. <laughs> you are much busier than everyone else. <laughs> At least it, <laughs> it seems from my perspective. I mean, you have, I th it's just unbelievable the amount of things that you do, the, all the different styles of climbing, you mix in training, you have a family, you write books, you have a, an amazing vlog that I've really enjoyed that you do. You post content on Instagram. You're always doing research and experimenting. I, I would love to ask how you balance everything. Are, are there any things that, I don't know, any practices or um, tools that you found that have helped to try to balance and maybe create boundaries for your time? Yeah, we, I mean, we can focus on sleep in particular if you want to. That's really interesting as well. Yeah, well, I think they just all play into each other. I've just gradually tried to refine my whole routine uh, over over many years to try and make everything work more efficiently. Mm -hmm. um, so, like a huge part of that is having a bouldering wall in my garage. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's just absolutely huge. So, when I, I was thinking about this the other day, like. The amount of time that I used to spend traveling back and forth to a climbing wall several times a week, it just adds up and adds up and adds up. So that's all time that you can be doing other things. Uh, so now not having that, you know, I've got the climbing wall 
two meters from my back door and it's it's got everything I need. Um, that's a huge asset. It took a long time to get there, um, but now that I have it, it's great. And also, my house is in a great spot for climbing. It's I have many different styles of climbing that are very close by. I can travel far if I want to, but I can spend long periods of time at home and, and that works well. And I mean, a big part of it, I suppose, is um, everyone, including family, understanding that climbing is very important to me. And I think there's a huge advantage if you see yourself as like being a professional climber Hmm. Um, because then people sort of say, oh yeah, well, you've, you've got to focus on it. Sure. And that's great because people just understand that you have to make it your focus. Um, so I, <laughs> I think it, it, like if more people sort of saw themselves in that way, <laughs> then, um, things just kind of get a little bit easier, I suppose. Um, but also just having like ways of working. I mean, you're talking about research. I mean, gradually... I used to spend, be hugely inefficient and spend a huge amount of time faffing about not really researching in an efficient way. And I've gradually got better at it. And it's, it's actually ridiculous that I got through two university degrees with such an inefficient practice because they'd waste a lot of time. And I'm far better at, at researching hmm. it more quickly with just some basic you know, online tools for gathering and organizing my research and um, using social media to, to help me find research and then see it and store it and organize it and think about it. So I've refined all these small aspects. I don't think there's any one thing really, but also it's all stuff that I don't do. Like I don't spend really any time doing anything else. <laughs> so it's also about like what you're not doing. Um, yeah, sure. So I, I, don't, I, I just don't, I just don't uh, waste a lot of time doing, doing anything else. I mean, there's obviously some things that you have to make choices. I mean, it would be nice to go and hang out with, with friends or, or like travel a bit more or things like that. So I do, I don't do that much of that, but well, everyone chooses what they want really, don't they? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the main points that that you focus on in 9 out of 10 climbers, and, and this is actually the one that's resonating with me most recently, is that bouldering is king. And mm-hmm. it seems like in your recommendations for training, you always come back to that. Like, make sure that you're bouldering. Make sure that that's a staple in in your life throughout the entire year. And you just talked about having a bouldering wall in your house or in mm. your garage. I would love to to hear how you fit in bouldering on a few different levels. Maybe we could start with um, throughout the entire year, how that mm-hmm. fits in, because you do switch your focus on so many different aspects of climbing throughout the year. Um, let's start with that. And then I'd love to also hear how you think of it when you're building towards a goal and then like maybe what your weekly bouldering looks like. Mm-hmm. Okay. So... It's sort of easy for me in a way because I can nicely use the the weather here in Scotland to dictate my bouldering schedule and it actually works out really well. It gives me a nice variety of climbing so when the weather's good I just go climbing and sometimes that's just going bouldering and when the weather's poor I'll, I'll train on the board 
and right through the season that actually works just spot on <laughs> um, I, I must admit that I don't count how many days I spend on the board and I don't even really try to manipulate it that much because as year on year it just works out quite well I don't ever get to a stage where I'm I'm lacking time on the board occasionally a little bit maybe um, and I also don't get time where I feel like well I've just been training and training and training on the board for a really long period without a break and it's actually getting a bit monotonous the only exception to that actually was the spring lockdown this year mm. um, where I had maybe 10 weeks just training on the board I think I did 4 days a week for about 10 weeks straight um, and because it's my own board and I know it well and I know the, the boulder problems you know a two hour bouldering session plus you know a bit of fingerboard plus a bit of endurance plus a bit of basic strength stuff it ends up that's quite that's a lot of training so two hours bouldering when you know the problems well is is intense uh, so that four days a week it certainly feels like a lot to me and by the end of that period I was I was thinking um actually I think bef even before the lockdown ended I think I did actually end up taking a full week off of nothing because I just felt mm, I feel like I could get injured if I if I carry on without a break so that's not normally a problem that I have it's like you know mixing it up normally I'll go off trad climbing and then I'll go off trad climbing on a completely different rock type and it could be both trad climbs but they're the, the climbs are such different character that it feels like variety anyway both physically and mentally. And then bouldering outside, that's quite different character as well. It could be something that's really crimpy and precise, or it could be something that's really burly. So if you're going one place one week and another place another week, you're you're getting variety, and so it all just takes care of itself. So I, I don't really tend to plan much how I'm going to do things, with the only exception being if I have some really important project that has a very particular window of conditions that I know I need to be ready for and then sometimes a little bit yeah and then so in terms of the actual bouldering itself like like for example on the board so I just before I came on to speak to you I was just doing a two-hour bouldering session there and um, there was no there's no particular structure other than the board is set in a way that sort of mimics the climbs I want to do, which are mainly quite fingery. So I do have, I don't have lots of like big volumes on, on my board because like big compression sloper problems are just not really the type of terrain that any of my projects are, are on. They tend to all be, um, how hard can you pull on that little crimp mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> on, on, a, on very steep ground. Um, so I tend to focus on that. Um, and I just have a variety of problems, mainly mainly quite hard ones that take me a while. And I'll do a mix of some that I've done before that I'll try and repeat. And I'm constantly making up new ones. Um, but I primarily treat it in a similar way to bouldering outside in that I, I try hard and I enjoy myself doing it. And beyond that, there's not a huge amount of structure to the bouldering huh. sessions. Okay. Yeah. 
as far as the ingredients that go into your session, does that is that pretty similar each time? Like, do you do the hard bouldering and the fingerboarding and the circuits and the strength stuff every time? Or do you have different days where you focus more on circuits or, or that sort of thing? Yeah, I do have some variety, yeah. Okay. But again, rather than sitting down and planning it out, I usually find that the variety just introduces itself. So if I set a boulder problem and it ends up being kind of easier than I expected and I just end up doing it. So you set it, say you spend like 20 minutes setting something for yourself and then you spend half an hour having a handful of tries and then you do it. Then I'll go, all right, okay, well I'll move on and I'll do my fingerboard session or I'll do a campus board session. And I'll roughly keep in mind, well, it's like, well, I did a campus board session the last two sessions, so maybe I'll do something else. Okay. <laughs> so there's a rough calculation in there of like, well, <laughs> I've done a lot of this, so I could do with doing something else, or I've not been on the campus board for ages, so maybe I'll do that today. But it's also, if, if I set the Boulder project and it ends up being really hard and I end up spending the whole session on it, then I'll just do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and if it, if it ended up getting like oh well I've not done this type of exercise for a good while I'll probably be losing ground on it and feeling weak on it mm. then I'll think well okay I'll make an, a, an effort to do more of that in the next few sessions mm. um, but it doesn't really suit me well to sit down and program it all out just because the, the whole plan would instantly go out the window as soon as the weather forecast changed <laughs> okay <laughs> and there's good there's good conditions so it's yeah. like well, okay, well i'm not training i'm going out to try the climbs i want to try so it's better for me to have a short-term rough working plan mm. <laughs> um, and just and just go along like that if i lived in a big city and i wasn't going to be able to go on a climbing trip for months then i would do it differently but even then it, it's it's kind of tricky because it's like how do you know how many campus sessions you can do in a month? <laughs> like, how how do you how do you answer that question? <laughs> I I don't know. <laughs> like, you can know it was well. Even even if you get injured, can you say well it was because it was too much training, or can you say it was because the quality of the rest wasn't high enough, hmm. and you were under recovering? Maybe you could have handled the training fine. No one's ever resting perfectly. <laughs> so you can maybe but you can maybe say it was too much if you if you get injured or you feel really tired or something but if you undercook it and not do enough well how do you assess that up front programming training is is pretty difficult to do in an educated way actually saying okay i have a I have a real reason to to do this many sessions or that many sessions <laughs> It, it's it's not easy. So I think ongoing monitoring based on how you feel is still going to be a, a really key aspect for, for anyone. Okay. Uh, to think, well, yeah, how tired do I feel? And I, compared to last week, is, is, is my sort of readiness to train at the start of each session pretty good or is it pretty poor? And it's really important, I think, if even if you have a plan, if you start the session and you're not feeling that good, don't be afraid to bin it and do something much, could be still intense, but, but less, okay. much less volume, or switch to doing something easier. I have sometimes done that where if I, 
I'm warming up and I just know the power isn't there. Like you don't have that last few percent. I was going, I'm doing an endurance session today and I'll just do mm. circuits and okay. just completely not do any fingerboard, not do any bouldering or anything. And that I think that works well. I mean, there's other ways you can measure it. You can do things like measure heart rate variability. A lot of other sports rely quite heavily on that. That, I think, works very well for the classic endurance sports. How well it works for strength-based sports? Mm, I've listened to various people arguing about that. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm really not sure. Okay. But yeah, I, I, I don't use it myself. Uh, I, I tend to... I also have experience, and I think experience really helps. I roughly know, like, under conditions of decent lifestyle and recovery, I can handle this much training. And I kind of have a fairly decent prediction that if I do this, I'm probably going to feel like that. Hmm. And I'm usually, usually roughly right. Um, hmm. But it just comes with experience. Yeah. That's really interesting. That's very... That's a lot more go with the flow than I would have expected, I think, from you, having read your material and seen your clips and whatnot. Um, yeah, I, I would love yeah. to I ask... Suppose, oh, go ahead. I, suppose, I was just going to say, I suppose there is... There's some aspects where there's, there's structure and things that I like to do in a certain way. Like, like I, I like to be fairly recovered if I'm going to have a bouldering session. Or a fingerboard session like that's important and like I don't you really deviate that much from that. If I'm training endurance, then yeah, volume is really really important. So it's almost the opposite where, you know, you do have to rack up the sessions that that number of of um, circuits over time again and again is is really key, and you're not going to make progress if you don't do that. So there are some hard and fast rules. But there also is a fair bit of flexibility. But also, like, you know, when you're doing periodization, a big part of it, the purpose of it is to introduce variety. But that's a sort of, it's a solution to a problem I don't have, if you like. <laughs> because <laughs> my schedule has variety already. Okay. But, you know, I do lots of different climbing disciplines. I arrange my time based on intermittent weather and conditions. So I already get variety. I don't need to worry about it so much. It's more mm -hmm. a, a real problem for someone that just, they have one gym that they go to again and again for months on end. And, you know, it's the same problems, the same fingerboard. Mm. Then that's when it does become a bit more important that mm. you, you have to work hard to make sure you, you do introduce that variety. Mm -hmm. Quick question about your sessions that you just mentioned. Do you often do fingerboarding and bouldering on the same day? Yeah, yeah, I do that. That's that feels absolutely fine to me. Um, Which do you do first? I have I've actually tried both. Um, okay. I used to do fingerboarding first, but actually in these days I, I much prefer doing fingerboarding after bouldering. Okay. Um, Interesting. Uh, I mean, I find that I can handle, uh, yeah, up to two hours, like 90 minutes to two hours of bouldering. And I have a fairly high work rate. Like, I don't sit around much. Um, so, you know, I'll try the boulder and I'll not rest a long time before I try it again. So it's quite a, two hours is quite a lot of bouldering. 
and then I'll, I'll quite happily do fingerboarding after that. Um, I just feel um, really warmed up and really like I'm pulling hard and everything's firing mm. and that just feels good to do the fingerboarding but it's, the fingerboarding is quite, it's very basic. It's also pretty safe, you know, well, it's very safe if you do it, as long as you just stick to some basic rules, then it's it's fine. So that, that, that feels good to me. I just sometimes feel that if I fingerboard first and then boulder, I've got to do quite a long warm-up on the, the wall to be safe for the fingerboarding. And then I do the fingerboard and then I find that the bouldering quality is just not quite, it's like, you know, 95%. So okay. I, I, it probably doesn't really matter that much. It's all just strength training. Okay. Yeah. I think I learned the one minute rest per move rule from you. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I remember you writing about that where you re you recommended or your kind of rule of thumb was rest for one minute per moves that you just did on your boulder. So if it's a, a 10 move boulder and you fell on move number seven, you rest for about seven minutes or at least seven yeah. minutes. Do you, do you still stick to that? I, I mean, I don't really think about it like that. I think that probably is a decent rule of thumb to make sure that you have a good quality attempt. It maybe depends a bit more on what your goals for the session are. Like if you're, if you're, if it's purely training, or if it's performing, <laughs> and sometimes like the line is quite blurred. Like even if you're in the gym, and you're like, it's basically a training session. But sometimes you want to still have very high quality attempts and actually do a project, and I think that's actually quite good and. Um, so sometimes it might be better to err on the side of resting longer and having very high quality attempts. In all, in all probability, it might be better to do a bit of a mix of both and sometimes do very high quality efforts on stuff that's absolutely at your limit with more rest some of the time and then do some easier boulders but err on the side of a little bit less rest and you might feel that you still feel a little bit of the previous attempt in your in your arms as you're climbing, and that might not be such a bad thing. So probably covering both bases might make sense. But broadly, yeah, I think if if you do if you do seven seven hard moves in a row that are quite burly, you know, quite powerful, then yeah, a good few minutes, like yeah, five to seven minutes, probably makes sense. Depends slightly on the character of the moves. If they're more fingery and technical, you might not need anywhere near that. Might need much less. Hmm. Yeah. I would love to dive into some of these listener questions. Mm -hmm. I've got quite a few of them, so we'll see how we'll just see how they go, and and we can kind of adjust as needed. But they kind of span <laughs> all of the topics that we've talked about and more so far. But yeah, yeah. The first one. This is from Adriel. He said, I'm curious about Dave's thoughts in general on climbing hard into older age. Any advice for maintaining a positive growth curve would be helpful. What does he think the upper age limit is nowadays for hitting peak performance? Uh, well, I mean, the, the only evidence that I can go by is observing other climbers. <laughs> and there are plenty of examples of climbers in their 40s, 50s, 60s who are improving and also improving at some pretty damn high grades. 
Yeah, I think he wrote about Stevie Haston in the in the nine out of ten climbers. Book. Stevie Haston is a great example. Steve McClure in the UK. Mm. You know, he did his first nine B in his mid to late forties. My friend Neil Gresham, he did his first eight C plus in his late forties, forty seven. And like I remember, wow. I remember Neil when I started climbing in the late nineties, visiting my climbing wall, and I remember being utterly shocked because. I remember seeing him falling off some boulder problems that I didn't think were that hard in my local gym and just being like, <laughs> how can that possibly be? <laughs> but it just shows you, you know, it's like not only can people climb some pretty hard, hard grades without being all that strong, but they can also just, mm. you know, 20 years later, they're still getting better and, and uh, mm. you know, doing their first AC plus. That's pretty impressive. Um I still feel like I'm still improving, not not quickly, but <laughs> and not not. How old always, are you? I'm 42, um, and not always okay. continuously. But I also did have a long period where I had some really significant injuries. Like I, I, I fell off a bunch of trad routes and then smashed my ankles <laughs> up. Had multiple surgeries and had a lot of time yeah, I remember on, on crutches. Um, so all of that took big chunks of time out of my regular climbing, um, which they did, that did take a while to come back from. I also had a long period years ago where I did struggle with the golfer's elbow and I wasn't really doing that much training. Um, so, so yeah, I've, I've had sort of breaks, but yeah, so I still, I still feel like I can improve. So I, I honestly don't know. I mean, for sure, it's harder to maintain that sort of anabolic state, if you will, that a young person has as you get older. But generally speaking, the curve, the fall-off, is a lot um, flatter, a lot further into old age than people maybe think. Hmm. And, and even then, it only really applies to your maximum genetic potential. Your response hmm. to training is still is still good. You should still respond to training as long as your lifestyle is good. So the main issue with aging is not really aging, it's the lifestyle changes that go along with aging. It's that people mm. end up too busy in their in their jobs and their life in general to actually train. They end up living far away from the climbing, <laughs> uh, not being able to immerse themselves in climbing or you know getting involved in, in other things. It's, it's, it's those aspects that are really the problem but for sure like some of the things we've talked about like sleep and sleep and diet those two aspects mm. play a huge role so many people in their in their 30s 40s 50s are not getting nearly enough and poor quality sleep and mm. their diet is not as good as it could be both in terms of it can be in terms of energy, but, well, I mean, that can go in either direction. For some people, it's too much energy. Some people, it's too little. Um, mm. Often for protein quantity and quality and nutrient density is just not good enough. And, you know, if, if, if people are interested to look at that, they can they can measure some biomarker markers. You know, they can experiment on themselves and look at their testosterone. You know, where is it? Mm. And if you do this experiment, what happens to it? Does it rise? Does it fall? Yeah. So I, I, just, I just don't think it's something that is really worth worrying about. Like, you can improve. <laughs> you, if, 
if you have to, it's like one of those things that if you ask the question, if, if, if you feel like you have to ask the question, the answer is you can definitely improve. <laughs> <laughs> There's hope. There's hope yeah, for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, cool. you know what, earlier I was saying that, sorry, yeah. I was going to say it, earlier I was talking about the best way to make sure you do your project is to identify with it. And that's often the aspect that comes along with old age is people identify with thinking, oh, maybe I'm just too old to do that. But if they, hmm. if they instead identified with, I bloody well have to do that, I have to do it, mm. then they would do it. I almost asked this earlier and it, and we, you know, we went off onto something else, but I'm just curious, how much protein do you shoot for per day? That's a pretty common theme on the show so far. So I'd love to hear your take on that. Um, well, the basic answer to that is a lot and very high quality protein, which means animal protein. Um, I don't I don't measure it again because I organize my diet in a way that I don't have to it just automatically comes with the foods that I eat so you know I eat a lot of red meat and eggs and um, also a, a little bit of dairy well actually a fair bit of dairy protein really so in all my meals in the day are, are all the foods that I eat are rich in protein uh, so I, I'm just not going to run low in protein but it ends up being between 120 grams and well probably 200 at an absolute maximum um okay but it probably i i haven't measured it but i i would imagine that the average comes out at around 140 150 grams a day something like that per day yeah okay. and, and, and all of them almost all of that being animal protein or definitely all of it at the moment anyway <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's we've we've kind of teased it a couple times. That's as good a transition as any. Tell me about your current diet experiment. I'd love mm. to hear what you're doing and why you decided to try this experiment. Yeah, sure, sure. And well, how I mean, it's going? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've done many different experiments on myself. Um, one of the things that when I started to get interested in nutrition and like five years ago. And I, I first experimented with ketogenic diets, uh, which I had brilliant experiences with and still still use, um, was I, I sort of shed a lot of my preconceptions about diet. And I sort of felt like I went back to square one of like, well, I can see that there are many different possible diets that could be healthy. And uh, looking at the research and the, and the more, the more you look at the, the, the research with a critical eye, the more you think, well, I can't really tell from the research whether something is going to work well or not. I'm just going to have to try it. So I've tried multiple diets, high-carb diets, low-carb diets, ketogenic diets, vegetarian diets. Um, but right now I've been uh, doing a carnivore diet. And I, I first did that as a six-week experiment back in 2018. And I felt, I felt really good um, in general. Like I performed well in my climbing and I felt like just I had good energy and I, I, I quite, yeah, I didn't mind the diet. It was restrictive, obviously, but it was fine. Yeah, you, you know, you adjust to it. But one interesting thing was that I've suffered with quite bad eczema, the skin condition eczema, all my life. It's mainly affecting my feet, but it really has been quite hmm. bad and it, um, it's given me really constant pain almost all my life since I was a baby. 
Uh, I spent a bit of time in hospital with it as a kid. It was really bad. And basically every time I put on a pair of rock shoes for the last 25 years, I've had to kind of hold my breath, grip my teeth because of pain, taking rock shoes on and off and just not good wow. at all. So yeah. there's a fair bit of, sort of suffering involved in it. It's just not not really a good condition to have. Um, but when I did that carnivore diet in 2018, it completely disappeared, just completely gone within four days. <laughs> um, within four days? Yeah. And wow, that's fascinating. I was like, oh my goodness. Another experiment that I've done with diets is prolonged fasting. So every year for the last few years, I've done a seven-day water fast and it completely okay. disappeared during those fasts as well mm-hmm. um so i was like well there's there's something about is it is it like when i did the fasting experiments i was like well is it just the absence of food that's obviously not sustainable um <laughs> but then then the carnivore diet maybe think well okay there's like clearly the there's something going on there. There's something quite dramatic that's playing a role in it. And so I'd like to explore that a bit more and see if I could at least reproduce that. So I th- it was always on my list of things to do, to, to do that again. Um, mm. And interestingly, after my last seven-day fast, the eczema disappeared during the fast off my feet and then it returned when I started to eat food again, but only on one foot. Huh. <laughs> Which I, I, I have no I have no explanation for it. I, I don't know why, but I was always thinking, well, if it's possible for me to make it disappear, maybe it's possible for me to make it disappear on the other foot, and it will just stay away. Um, yeah. So I thought I will try a carnivore diet again. So I, I started that um, towards the end of October, and um, you know the eczema on my other foot disappeared again within two days, gone completely. Wow. Um, wow. And so I've been eating that way now for two and a half months. And it's, it's brilliant. I mean, just for that one thing to have com- complete resolution of that condition, I would co- happily eat this way for the rest of my life because of the, the suffering that huh. was involved in the condition. It's, it's just amazing. So I'm delighted. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, that is fascinating. So it sounds like you're eating just red meat and eggs and it sounds like you're including dairy as well yeah yeah a lot of people are intolerant to dairy and some people are intolerant with eggs as well but i I seem to have no problem i initially thought i might try only meat but i must admit i found that quite difficult because i don't actually like red meat that much (laughs) like i don't really enjoy (laughs) eating it um it's just it's just a very healthy food so (laughs) <laughs> it's kind of tricky um so I, I i did actually try to start eating just meat but i found that very very difficult and so i added back in eggs and dairy and they, they seem to cause me no issues at least so far okay um so i tend to eat you know four or five eggs in the morning and then i'll eat some high fat dairy like greek yogurt i also drink tea with with milk in my tea so i'm also getting a little bit of carbohydrate from both the milk and the yogurt, but not much, okay. not much. Um, yeah. And then I'll, I'll eat, you know, around a, a pound of meat a day, really, something like that. Uh, maybe a bit okay. le- maybe a bit less than that. I'll also eat some organ meats, like maybe every week I'll have a little bit of liver. Okay. Um, and that's about it, really. Yeah. Interesting. And so that's going to, so what I'll do is 
Um, I did my bloods at the start before I started, and I'll do bloods again at three months. Um, okay. And then I'll reintroduce plant foods one at a time, uh, starting with the first food I would want to reintroduce to my diet, which would be berries. So okay. I'll reintroduce strawberries and raspberries, and then try that for a week or two, see if there's any reappearance of symptoms of the eczema, and then just continue that process to see if it reappears, which it may or may not, I have no idea. <laughs> okay. So you're kind of, you're treating it as like the ultimate elimination diet. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Huh. It's, okay. it's an excellent elimination diet to do because outside of a few very specific conditions, the allergy to um, red meat is pretty rare. Mm. Um, so it's generally a very sort of safe and very palatable food. Um, so you can, you, you drop back to that and then you just add foods back in. Um, so for all sorts of, of conditions, it appears to be useful. Anecdotally, again, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's something that I'm sure will be studied in the future. But, um, you know, if you go looking for studies on the carnivore diet, you won't find them. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. One question I'd love to ask about about that diet with uh, sport climbing in particular. Mm. Um, I've alluded to this in the past and I actually plan to do a solo episode kind of talking about my journey with my experiments with diet. And mm -hmm. I actually got um, kind of sucked down a rabbit hole of not eating enough for quite a while. Enough food? And that ended up, not enough food. Yeah. yeah. And that ended up backfiring uh, mm. pretty significantly, <laughs> as you can imagine. But um, I was trying a ketogenic diet for quite a while probably six months mm -hmm. and again the caveat is that in hindsight i don't think i was eating enough calories and i don't think i was eating enough protein right but um i was eating almost zero carb yeah and i felt like i had actually pretty good strength and power but my sport climbing really suffered i felt mm -hmm. i kind of the analogy was like a five um a five gear car you know mm -hmm. i had first gear and i had like fourth and fifth gear my endurance was really good but i had nothing in between i had yeah. no glycolytic capacity basically I, yeah. I couldn't do anything that you know resembles power endurance how has that been for you do you feel like you can do glycolytic activity on this diet and and does it support that sort of activity yes within a very specific context <laughs> so this is something that I've, <laughs> okay. I've thought about a lot and I'm actually in the middle of making a very long uh, video from a YouTube channel on this subject where I kind of go into oh, the, the, the research on it. That's taken me a long time to prepare, but when I, when I finally finish it, then it will be, it will be detailed. But to, just to, to, to summarize it, um, I mean, your experience, I think, makes sense and it speaks to a lack of glycogen, you know, just low glycogen stores. If you don't have glycogen, no matter what diet you're on, then you're not going to be able to do something like sport climbing or middle distance running. You ought to still be able to manage your bouldering or your very low intensity, you know, hill walking or, you know, running at a very aerobic pace up to 65% of your VO2 max or so or something like that. Mm -hmm. But that, that middle distance, that sort of, 400 meter running, you know, up to five to 10K running where you really are leaning on your glycogen stores a lot. So there's a high flux of 
using tearing through that glycogen store at a high rate and then needing to replenish it. You just need to, to eat more glucose. Your body will make glucose. So on a zero carb diet, and you know, I have done my zero carb diet, and actually when I was doing my first carnivore diet, that's the lowest amount of carbs I've ever eaten in my life. And it was about 20 grams a day, I think. And at that time I was in Spain and I was trying a Chris Sharma problem called Catalan Witness of Fitness. There's a video of it on mm. my YouTube channel and you can see it. Uh -huh. it's, a, it's a power endurance problem. Like it's, a V14 roof? Uh, yeah, it's a V14 roof, it's about 30 uh -huh. moves or so. So I was having sessions trying that. So my power endurance performance was absolutely fine, but my total time just being pumped was actually quite low. <laughs> you can't be pumped on it because if you do, you fall off. <laughs> <laughs> that was my experience. It was the yeah. weirdest thing. I would, I would feel totally fine, totally fine, mm -hmm. totally fine, and then just melt off the wall. It was yeah. really strange. It, was, it would catch me off guard all the time. Yeah, yeah. That's just indicative yeah. of the, the glycogen stores being low. So I... On a key, when I was doing the keto diet experiments, I tried to test that. I tried to say, well, can I make myself bonk and have that experience of like, you just mm. hit the wall of like, you've run out of glycogen, it's not in the tank anymore. And I found that with the keto diet that I was eating, I could only make myself do that in the context of not enough calories. Okay. So it was when I was stacking ketogenic diet plus intermittent fasting Mm -hmm. on top then I, I could I would bonk but as long as I was eating sufficient calories I was fine but I would also say that I was eating what I would call an athlete's ketogenic diet which is just more generous in carbs okay <laughs> I've got a study open on, on my computer just now that's um it was a 2019 study on ultra runners looking at they're measuring their ketones during a multi-day stage race where they're running 240k across multiple days. And it found that their average intake of carbs was 300 grams a day. And they were all in ketosis. And some of wow. them were in, were in ketosis, even though they, that, that was the average, but some of them were eating up to 600 carbs a day, 600 grams, and they were still in ketosis. <laughs> So the amount Fascinating. of the level of ketosis was, was unrelated to their carbohydrate intake, i.e. Hmm. all of them were not eating an, enough carbs to knock them out of ketosis. <laughs> hmm. So <laughs> glycogen storage is an issue of flux. So if you're tearing through the glycogen store then at a very high rate, then it needs a high rate of replenishment in order for it to be replenished. So you can be on a ketogenic diet that has just enough carbs to be keto, <laughs> but has enough that your glycogen store is not hitting the bottom. So I, I think where I sort of sit on a keto diet is with an intake of about, I don't know, I don't actually know how many calories I eat because it's very difficult to estimate accurately. But let's say it's two and a half thousand calories. I think that's probably plus or plus or minus five hundred. I, I don't actually know. <laughs> okay. Um. Uh, I probably eat between sixty and a hundred grams 
and I, would, I reckon the average probably sits around 80 grams of carbs a day. And that's, oh, okay. and that's enough that I would be in mild ketosis in parts of the day, but not maybe not all of the day, maybe not immediately after a meal. Okay. So to me, that's like an athlete's ketogenic diet where you're just in ketosis, but you're, mm. and your, your glycogen stores are un, unlikely to be full, but once adapted to the diet, which does take time, and for some people I think it takes up to a year or a year and a half, then I don't think glycogen stores will be empty either. But if you're on, if you're on, if you do a keto diet that's like more appropriate to someone with epilepsy or treating some other neurological condition, which is like much stricter, low in protein, really low in carbs, trying to minimize carbs right down to nothing, or like 20 grams or even 50 grams, and you're not eating that much food and you're doing pumpy sport climbing, then mm -hmm. that's a recipe for running out of glycogen and feeling rubbish. So mm. something in that has to change in order to feel okay. And especially if you're a, if you're a, a kind of bigger climber as well, you know, if, if you're carrying, you know, 150 to 200 pounds up an overhanging sport route, just from a mass balance point of view, that's going to take more grams of glucose to fuel. <laughs> mm. <laughs> so sure. it's not an easy thing to do, managing a, a keto diet in a sport that requires glycolytic activity. It's a fine balancing act to find the, the, the sort of sweet spot. But the, the, the goal is not to just drive it down right to zero, mm. unless okay. your glycolytic flux is not that high. So for me... I could eat 20 grams of carbs and be on that Catalan Witness of Fitness and be absolutely fine. I had no problem. Huh. Um, but I reckon if I went up the roads to a sport, a sport climbing crag and tried to on-site 13As all day, big pumpy 13As that were kind of burly on your arms, mm. then I would probably run out of glycogen on the same carb amount. Okay. Yeah. So I think it's like I just tend to find that I go, if I'm trying to do a keto diet in climbing, my approach was I, I go low, drive carbs low enough to the point where I bonk and then just add them back in 10 gram increments. And then you hit the sweet spot and then I was just fine. <laughs> okay. Very interesting. Very yeah. Interesting. And, and, and I think that um, where that sweet spot lies is probably going to be different for different climbers. If you weigh 200 pounds, and you're doing burly, steep overhanging on sighting or red pointing on long sort of 20, 30 meter endurance sport routes, you're probably going to need to be at the upper end of, of the range. And if mm -hmm. you're doing fingery, precise boulder problems <laughs> and you weigh like 120 pounds, then you're going to need a lot less. Um, and if your total volume of training is less, you know, then it's going to be less. Yeah, so I think that's where you can reconcile the different experiences that people have on keto diets. Some people try it and they have this, they're like, I don't understand, like, I just feel terrible. Mm. And other people are like, oh, it's brilliant, I feel, feel really good. And it probably comes down to differences of a few tens of grams of carbs. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. does, that, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. Mm. Yeah, thank you for all that. That's really interesting. Um, 
This is another listener question. This one's kind of fun. This is from Sharice. And she has a question about eggs. And this is from a blog post you wrote a couple of years ago about the 24-8, which oh, is yes. a crazy multidiscipline link up you did in 24 hours. Yes. And uh, in that blog, you have a, a couple quotes from you here. You wrote that, you know, in the morning you made your usual pile of eggs and struggled to eat them. And then later in the post you wrote... Claire made you and your partner, Kev, piles of eggs. And so Cherise's question is, how many eggs make a pile of eggs? <laughs> At least four as a minimum. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, once, I once had someone write to me um, and they said that they were trying to lose weight for their climbing. But this is in the context of, I think they used to be quite a, a very heavily built bodybuilder. But they were saying they were okay. trying to lose a bit of weight for their climbing using a keto diet. And they were eating lots of eggs. And they just couldn't understand why they were not losing weight because they were doing a keto diet. <laughs> and in the course of the conversation, it emerged that um, they, they said they, they were eating up to 20 eggs in one sitting. Oh, wow. I was like, well... In one sitting. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's your problem. <laughs> 20 eggs is, wow. is quite good. <laughs> Um, but yeah, at least I would say at least at least four, as a, at least counts, four in a pile. Counts as a pile, yeah. <laughs> Although certainly, I don't know what it's Pretty, like in the US, perfect. but in the UK, if you go into uh, a cafe for some for some breakfast, um, mm -hmm. and you order four eggs, invariably the staff will make some comment about, "Oh, you must be hungry" or something like that, or they'll, they'll be surprised that you eat four eggs. And you just think, ah, oh, but I mean, four eggs is like 300 calories. It's nothing. Right. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, when you, uh, when you cut out the pancakes and all the other things that we normally have with breakfast, you have room for at least a couple more eggs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, normally with a full um, breakfast that they would serve in, in the UK, they would serve it with like two slices of bread and butter with the breakfast. Mm. And that's more than 300 calories on its own. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, usually I have a pile of eggs. And um, if I really need some energy, I'll, I'll add a pile of sausages as well. <laughs> yeah, for extra energy. And sometimes I'll follow, you know, I would follow up my four eggs with half a kilo of Greek yogurt. Okay. So, yeah. I eat a lot. I eat a lot of food, you know. Yeah. Plenty, plenty of food. And that is an important yeah. thing to say for climbers because there's a lot of climbers that... Do not eat enough food. <laughs> yeah. You know what? Let's. There's a question about that. Let's jump to this one. This is from Maria. Mm -hmm. She asks, how do you manage the strength to weight ratio through diet while avoiding falling down the rabbit hole of energy deficiency and or disordered eating? Mm, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that was my original motivation for doing the keto diet because I found that on a mixed diet, I was constantly in this in this battle really with um it's like a a battle of three sides one was like trying to eat enough to fuel training and climbing um the other was managing to keep a reasonable body fat percentage even just a reasonable athletic body fat percentage not low by any standards in fact really high by climbing standards. And then the third aspect of it was hunger, just being hungry all the time. 
And to me, these things didn't really fit together. There was no relationship between my body fat percentage and my level of hunger. And that was really kind of problematic for me. So whether I consciously tried to eat less calories in order to be a bit leaner, it wouldn't, I would just be hungry all the time, whether I was lean or whether I was really quite heavy, you know, and, and oh, interesting. almost over fat. I mean, my body fat percentage by DEXA, even now, is still around 16, 17%. Oh, it's wow. Still, it's still high. Yeah. A lot of people don't like, might look at videos of me climbing and think, oh, it would seem a bit lower than that. But I store actually a yeah. fair bit of body fat in my legs. In fact, oh, okay. both times I've had DEXA scans, the scanning staff have commented on that to say that you you store more body fat in your legs than is normal for a male. Um, so to look at me without my t-shirt on, you know, sometimes have visible abs and you would think, well, maybe my body fat percentage should be a bit lower than that, but it's not. Hmm. Um, so yeah, so I, I sort of really struggled with just feeling hungry all the time. And when I did try to get a little bit leaner, just trying to get down from a high level to a, an acceptable level of body fat percentage for an athlete. I'd have problems with low energy. Occasionally, I'd even notice that I felt cold. And, uh, you know, that's like a real sign that your, your body's fighting it. That's really when you know the strategy has to change. And so that's what I was always looking for was some way to have a better way of managing that. Um, and you certainly don't need to do that with a low-carb diet. You can do it with many different diets, but I have just found that a, the low-carb diet really does solve these issues really well for me, um, mm. and that I find that I don't... like. It was a real revelation to me that I, I could actually exist at any body fat percentage and not be hungry all the time. It was great, uh, and I still, I still am very grateful to about that every day um because uh, that uh, I didn't I didn't enjoy that aspect of my life in general so I, I you know I don't I don't feel hungry and I, and I, all my blood markers are really good my testosterone is consistently high and other markers of energy availability are you know in good shape I can I train well and feel good and I just you know I wake up in the morning and I feel like I have energy so all these things are, are functioning fairly well and I can do that. The st same rules still apply if you push it to the extremes. So at some level, if I just lost body fat lower and lower and lower, at some point you will run into energy availability problems. And usually when you get there, you've already kind of gone well into it and hmm. you actually have to do a fair bit of work to come back and, and redress that. And uh, So it's something you want to prevent avoid rather than get into um uh, but I, I just don't feel like i have that problem and i can maintain a body fat percentage that i'm happy with and just feel healthy uh, and 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 i feel that number one is improving nutrient density that's that's key and then beyond that your dietary strategy can vary you can do it with different diets. I just get on very well with a low-carb diet. Um, and I, I, I don't know what proportion or percentage, if any, of other people might. They might need to mm. try it. 
to, to find out. Um, and, you know, some people view that as being risky because you might, by focusing on choosing any dietary strategy that's restrictive in some way, that you might get into dangerous practices with eating. And mm. that's that's a legitimate concern. I think, you know, athletes are almost self-selected as being a risky group for getting into eating disorders by their very nature. Sure. They're, they're obsessive and everything about our sporting culture is about optimising, refining, pushing to the limits. And, you know, as part of that, if we include diet in that, then inevitably it can run into problems. So we just have to be kind of vigilant of that. But I'd also think, well, yeah, you, you might view a change as a risk. But in, in my case, I viewed the status quo as a risk. I felt that where I was, I was at risk of an eating disorder. And by solving those problems, by changing my dietary strategy, I have freed myself from that problem. And I feel much mm. happier and I feel that my dietary strategy and way of eating is just, it's relaxed, it's happy, it's problem free. And I feel really happy about that. Mm. Yeah. That's cool. That's good to hear. A <laughs> um, couple of fun questions. Mm -hmm. Change of pace here. This one's from Mike. He writes, Dave, you are a hero, but I'll be honest. Much of the climbing in Scotland looks kind of chossy and overgrown. What crags should someone from the U.S. visit to correct that misconception? Well, if it comes to winter climbing, then, then overgrown is a feature and not a bug. <laughs> we like climbing on frozen turf because it's, it's really, really good to climb on. If you've just run it out up some, like, teetery slab that's covered in snow and you get to a patch of frozen turf it's the most welcome thing you've ever felt in your life <laughs> when you're like 40 foot out from some shaky piece of gear um so that's fine no there are there are many good crags in scotland um the the advantage of scotland the best thing about scotland is not actually any one crag but it is the variety of it mm. what i like about it compared to actually almost any other country I can think of, is that if you go 10, 20 miles to the next glen or the next region, the character of the landscape and the climbing is totally different. It feels like you're going to a different country. So one minute you're on climbing on andesite, then the next day you can climb on limestone and then on quartzite mm. and then on sandstone and then on granite and then on schist and and so on. And you can climb on sea cliffs or on islands or on mountain cliffs or on steep sport cliffs or on boulders. And you can do new routes as well, um, which is, I mean, new routes is something that I suppose in a way, maybe a lot of climbers wouldn't think of. It's like almost a discipline in itself, new routing. Hmm. I imagine most climbers haven't done a new route and might never do a new route, but it's something that I, I basically only do new routes. <laughs> I hardly ever repeat other routes in, unless hmm. I go on climbing trips to some other country. Uh, so new routing is a great experience in itself that I really enjoy. Um, but no, there's lots of good climbing in Scotland. Oh, maybe my maybe my videos aren't good enough if they look chosen. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll ask this as an extension of that question. What time of year would be the best time for a foreigner to visit to maximize ch uh, good chances of mm. or chances of good weather? 
Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we do have a bit of mixed weather in, in Scotland, but the spring is the best time. Between, okay. between around the start of April and the start of June, or maybe, maybe the middle of June is, is the best time, uh, where it tends okay. to be driest, and it's good conditions for everything. So in April, you can do lovely ice climbing in the sun on Ben Nevis, and then the next day go to Glen Nevis and climb in perfect conditions in the shade for bouldering and sport or in the mm. sun for trad. And that's actually where that 24-8 idea came oh. from was because <laughs> that period in the spring is so good conditions for everything that that's where the idea came from. Was like you're jumping around on different days trying to mix up the disciplines. So you're literally on your, on your hard boulder project and then the very next day you're on ice <laughs> up on Ben Nevis and I just thought it would be nice to do something from each discipline all in one day mm. yeah <laughs> <laughs> how was that enjoyable would you do something like that again it was I don't normally do that kind of thing like think up yeah. link ups or or sort of challenges like that I've, I don't think I've ever done it before but yeah. it, I, honestly I I can't think of a, a better day's climbing that I've ever had in my life. It was absolutely wow. brilliant. I loved it. <laughs> I absolutely loved it. It also was like a very great, perfect day of conditions. Um, and it was very exciting that that thing I'd thought about for years was kind of coming together. So it, it, that was that was all really nice. But just the experience of doing all those different disciplines all together, you know, it's like t uh, 10 to 7 in the morning, you know, doing a V12 boulder problem on tiny crimps. And then half an hour later, I'm on an E8 trad route, like running it out. And then half an hour later, I'm doing a 13B sport route. And then, you know, a few hours later, I'm I'm running it out on ice. And then I'm running a, along a ridge in the snow in the dark after that. And it was, everything about it was great. Even like, you know, at the end, like walking back to my house and like sort of wading through the river at five in the morning and then sitting down in, in my living room to eat my eggs. <laughs> and it was exactly <laughs> the same time as, as I'd been doing the same thing 24 hours previously and I was just watching the sun uh, rise <laughs> over the mountains. And oh, the whole experience was fantastic. Wow. Very cool. I will uh, I will link to that article. Did you make a video about that as well? Yeah, there is a video. It's not on my channel. It's on a, a friend's okay. channel who filmed it. But if you just, on YouTube, if you just search my name and then 24 slash 8, yeah, you'll see it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'll find that and link to that in the show notes as well. Okay. A couple more listener questions. Um, and these are both pretty heavy hitters. The first one is from Laurent. And he asks, how do you balance fatherhood and climbing? Any secret beta for a new father who'd like to keep improving at climbing while being present in his daughter's life? Oh yeah, I mean, the, the first thing is it's not, it's not, that's not a straightforward problem. There are going to be trade-offs somewhere, and you have to choose where they're going to be. <laughs> hmm. um, but it's it's really just about removing barriers, I think. So having a board in your house is just killer. It's just so important you know I remember when my daughter was a baby and you get that 45 minutes when she's asleep mm -hmm. and if you've got your own board 
you can warm up very quickly because you know the warm-ups and then you know the boulder problems. So in 45 minutes, you can do a big session. Hmm. You know, it takes you 10, 15 minutes to get warmed up and then you, you know exactly the pro progression of problems you can do. So you're actually still warming up, maybe up to 20 minutes, half an hour as you go through your hard problems and you know exactly hmm. which one is to do. And so it's there's no barriers, it's all efficient. And then, you know, you're literally still training and then you hear the cry as your your baby kids are waking up and you just open the door and go back to what you were doing. <laughs> um, so that that streamlines it. So removing barriers is, is really key. Um, I mean, having an understanding partner is great, but the other aspect that was key for me was not having to go on trips. Well, I mean, I did go on trips, but they were fairly short, but from, for the day-to-day -day climbing, I wasn't relying on like, well, I have to get on a plane and go somewhere. My projects were close to home. I could go out, you know, for a couple of days a week and that's, that's enough. Mm. <laughs> so if you've got your board at home and you can get a couple of days a week on your projects, you're fine. So you've, mm. you've got everything you need. And then of course there's managing sleep. That's, that's always challenging. I mean that's a that's a massive subject, like how to how to try and 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 shift a, a small infant's sleep schedule towards something that's healthy. The faster you can do that, the better. It's not straightforward. There's lots of pitfalls, and there's lots of variation between babies and infants. Some of them are great, some of them are really hard. <laughs> um, hopefully, you know you get it lucky and and you get a reasonable sleep schedule. And if not, maybe there's a there's a way where you can do it with division of labour and you can take turns with your partner mm. to do it. Yeah. But in the main, it's just really like maintaining that sleep allows you to feel like a human being enough to train. And then with that in place, then removing the barriers so that you don't have to travel anywhere to climb. It's just absolutely key. Mm. <laughs> so the sooner you think about that, the better. I mean, ideally... You would think about that in your younger life so that you already have your life set up where you're living in the mountains or near where you like to climb and you have your board set up and you're, you have everything in place ready for the next stage. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> this question is from Eric. He writes, I'd like to ask Dave if he has any recommendations for injury-prone climbers. My fiance does not have an extensive training background and did not really do any sort of high intensity exercise until she started climbing three years ago. She's had a ton of injuries that have come up, shoulders, wrist, back, etc. Hmm. And I want to know if you could recommend a weight routine to develop general athletic capacity. She's thin and has strong fingers, so most of her injuries have been to the larger structures. And it seems like just continuing to climb is creating more problems. Any suggestions would be great, greatly appreciated. Mm, yeah, that's not a straightforward problem. That's a difficult one without seeing the person and looking at, you know, what their, what their kind of phenotype is, how they're actually doing training, what kind of control and form they have while they're doing exercises. Because... You know, that, what's the origin of that problem? What's the cause? There could be multiple causes. There could be there could be one or there could be several all operating at the same time, such as 
there could just be such a low level of starting strength that it's just going to take time to build a base of body, basic body strength. Mm. And that will be with very, very basic exercises. I mean, you know, it's hard to get into the detail of like which exercises, but you know, the, the basic compound exercises that we do um, in, the, in the gym, right down to deadlift. Deadlift is a fantastic basic body power exercise. And just like uh, a lot of the things that we do on rings for upper body strength, with either pushing, a push-up exercise, a pull-up exercise, and other sort of shoulder, shouldery exercises that we do on the rings. These are very, very easy to come by all over the place now. It might take time to, to build up a base level of strength. I've seen that with a lot of female climbers that I've coached in the past. Sometimes like you can see that um, time in the gym, not in this, it doesn't need to be in a gym, it could just be at home. You don't need any equipment to do you know, a, a squatting, lifting, pulling or pushing exercise that uses the whole chain. Um, just doing that for several several months in order to build up a bit of resilience. But quite often there's more to it than that. There's, there's, a, there's a poor general health status that's underlying and that could be related to many years of poor lifestyle going before that, maybe like an, a, an active childhood, poor sleep, poor diet. I mean, there are issues where, like we were talking about diet earlier, some people are just eating either not nearly enough or not nearly high enough quality protein that as a result, their muscle mass is so poor. But it also means that, that even if they start to train, their response to training will be subpar. <laughs> And I think that may be playing a role in some people being seeming susceptible to injury for no apparent reason, you know. Mm. So it could be all of these things. It's that's, that's a hard one to pin down. Mm. And 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 I think if you've got that where you don't know where to start, that is where working with an experienced coach who might just be able to shortcut some of those insights for you. And, and just, it's a bit like, you know, my, we were talking earlier about my book, 9 Out of 10 Climbers, and that's almost like a, a buffet of potential problems <laughs> that you read through until you go, oh, yes, that applies to me. And I, 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 it's just obvious. But a coach is a, obviously a targeted way to, to, to look at that and, and just point out obvious things. And I think that's almost sometimes it's like the low hanging fruit for for coaches because someone like that is, might just be something so obvious that they will pick up, but only when they actually observe the person in real life. Hmm. Okay. I hope that, does, yeah, I hope that I doesn't sound like ducking the question. <laughs> no, 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 that makes perfect sense. And um, I think that that'll be really helpful. So thank you for that. All right. We're, we're getting there. I've, I would love to just ask you some rapid fire questions uh -huh. and start wrapping up. Um, yeah, sure. This has been amazing. I really appreciate your time. <laughs> These are all my questions. You're probably not going to like this one. If you could only focus on one facet or discipline of climbing for the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh, right. Okay. So like one style of climbing or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I could probably manage to just boulder. Yeah, okay. I would I would miss the mountains, but I, th I think it's it's hardwired in me. 
um, from where I started. I think all of us are, are, are influenced in our preferences by where we began. And like I started out bouldering on my own at this really nice bouldering area and on very technical problems. And I got to really love just working out sequences. And so I've always just enjoyed that ever since. And so if, if, you, if you took all other aspects of climbing away from me and just left me with that, I, I, would, I would be fulfilled. <laughs> 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 Although I miss the mountains and certainly in 2020, I realize how much the mountains actually matter. Hmm. Yeah, because we've, we've all been denied them for a while at mm. least. Yeah, sure. What was the last meal that you ate? <laughs> um, it was Greek yogurt. Okay. <laughs> Nothing in it? <laughs> nope. No, nope. I'm on a carnivore diet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to put eggs in it. <laughs> <laughs> I had them before, but um, yeah. So I think I, was, yeah, I had Greek yogurt before before I trained. Okay. Um, and shortly I'll go and eat some steak. <laughs> <laughs> what is a favorite or recent book that you would recommend oh um oh now there's many books that i would i'd like to recommend actually um maybe i maybe i could be allowed a couple <laughs> yeah of course um <laughs> well one that i've i've not finished reading but i've been reading which has helped me to understand what we touched on earlier about the transition of humans from their hunter-gatherer past that made up most of the time of, of the evolution of our species to being an agricultural society-based species. And that's a book called Against the Grain. I think the author is James Scott. Certainly Scott's his second name. Okay. Um, but that's that's a really interesting perspective on on... You know, because it's often assumed, and I certainly thought of society as being like an automatic step forward, and that as soon as society's formed with humans, that it solved a lot of problems. But mm. it presents a rather different perspective that actually it created a lot of problems. It also created a lot of ill health. Certainly something that mm. I wasn't aware of was how much human health actually declined when we switched uh, to an agricultural diet. And that brings up the other book that I would recommend which is, people often ask me if, if I had to read one book on nutrition, what would it be? And that's really difficult because it's such a big subject. It spans many different aspects that are important to understand it, I think. But um, one that was done decades ago uh, was a book called Nutrition and Physical Degeneration by a okay. guy called Weston A. Price. And Weston A. Price was a, a dentist and he wanted to understand the differences between the dental health of different populations and why some populations appear to be free of dental problems altogether. So he started to travel the world and, and, and just study different populations. And, but as he did so, he expanded his study to a full study of, of general health and, and nutrition. And although his book is not like a formal science book, it's an anthropological book, it really gives a, a good understanding that um, 
problems related to nutrition are not caused by ancest ancestral diets on the whole. They are caused by the shift away from ancestral diets. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Okay. And, yeah. And, and the effects, you can see them in independent populations living around the world that when they have certain commonalities, one obvious co commonality is that even if not all of them have equal access to animal source foods, they all value animal source foods very, very highly mm. and, and, and kind of look for them and, and celebrate them. Mm. Um, so there are these, these kind of commonalities between them, even if they don't have sort of very similar diets, um, you can see that they, they, they all recognize the importance of those foods. And they also eat far more animal source foods on the whole than we do today in the modern Western world, which I think a lot of people just that notion will be completely new to them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. I will link to both of those books in the show notes. If you had to give your 20 year old self any climbing or training advice, maybe just in one sentence, what would it be? Uh, <laughs> one sentence oh that's a tricky one um probably <laughs> we can just break to, the rule if you, yeah if you want. I, th I think to pay attention to high quality food i i just i i did not i did not give that adequate attention in my earlier years and i, th I think it just would have saved me so much so so many problems so so much time and thinking about dealing with problems in my climbing that were solved quite easily <laughs> I, yeah. I underappreciated the role that that played so yeah i know sorry that was more than a sentence <laughs> no that's that's great that's great mm. uh let's do the same question but for your 30 year old self what advice would you give um well, I mean, I, I think when I was about 30, I did actually do a, um, a big shift in my lifestyle where I, I did try to overwork myself and not sleep enough. And I was fortunate that I reached a crisis point where I remember actually one particular day where I just thought, I suddenly sort of woke up and thought, no, I, I, this is going to ruin my, my performance. I need to sleep. And that mm. without proper sleep, nothing is going to work and so I started to value it a bit more but that's I need to constantly discipline myself to make sure that I keep my sleep quality and quantity high enough how much sleep do you shoot for per night um at least eight hours but but okay. really ugh, it's tricky because ideally I would just sleep until I wake up but that's not always practical um so yeah at least at least eight hours, but I want to get eight hours sleep. So really, I want to get nine hours in bed. Okay. Um. Yeah. So probably that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but I also make sure that. Well, I mean, I, I'm a little bit careful with reducing my caffeine later in the day. Well, after midday. Uh, you know, just trying to avoid it. Mm. Um. I also do. I'm getting more into the habit of wearing my blue blocker glasses. I should be wearing oh, okay. them now, really, because it's quite, quite late <laughs> into the evening. Um, uh -huh. 
and, and generally winding down. And, I mean, a big difference was just deleting social media off my phone. That mm. really helps. <laughs> mm. I think, like, if people just did that, that would that would just wipe away so many problems. <laughs> that solve a lot of problems. I just I just finally watched uh, The Social Dilemma. Mm. I haven't seen Have that seen yet, that? but I haven't, right. but I've certainly heard a lot of discussion about it. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not surprised that it, that, that came out. Yeah. Yeah. It's an eye-opening documentary. It's really, really good. And I, I recommend that everyone watch it just because I think it's a good, uh, a good trigger to just kind of examine your own behavior a little bit more closely with some mm -hmm. of the stuff. Um, is there a specific route or boulder problem that has taught you the most? Um, no, I don't, I don't think so. I think, well, well, I say that, but then I do think there's probably been some sort of defining moments that I've had stages in, in my climbing that were really good. Maybe a, a couple, like one was when I was 15 or, or 16. I remember going up to try a, a, a winter route uh, with a friend and trying to lead it and, and backing off. I didn't fall off, but I just backed off and feeling really, really disappointed. And it's the, and it was, I, mean, I was only 15, you know, it's in that sort of really kind of important stage where you're learning some big lessons about how to live. But I remember feeling so strongly after that, like the feeling of failure huh. and I just couldn't stand it. I just like, I can't, I can't let that be. So I couldn't get a climbing partner to go back and try it. And it was in, still in condition, you know. So I went back the following week and sold it. Oh, um, wow. And I remember being passing the crux. Like, well, I was stuck at the crux for ages, going up and down, scared, just proper scared, you know. But I knew I could do it. It was fear. And I was like, no, I'm going to do it. And I, I sort of eventually past the move and then I remember going up the up, the easier upper section just completely euphoric <laughs> but not just because I'd done the climb but it was also I realized like oh, I was like well, almost wasn't the same person wow because I just I just felt like I, I feel capable in a way that like before I was like a kid and now I feel capable <laughs> that, that was really really good huh. um, and yeah so and so I was really strongly identified with that, like, I have to do that, I have to do it. And then that was what made me do it. And, and I tried to repeat that over and over again. <laughs> yeah. So that, that was an important route, I suppose. Cool. What is one of the best decisions you've ever made? Moving out of the city, I would say. Okay. Yeah. I used to, I grew up in Glasgow in Scotland and moved up to the mountains and just um, the feeling of having a climbing playground on the doorstep and, and not being surrounded by the city environment. It's just magic in almost every way, whether you're climbing or not, it's just, it's great. And I still, I've been living in the mountains for well over 10 years, getting on for 15 years now. And um still like all the time just go this is absolutely great <laughs> it's brilliant <laughs> it's incredible <clears throat> and final question what is something that you have been feeling especially grateful for lately well i mean right now 
it's obviously such an unusual time given that uh, we're in a lockdown and had like many freedoms removed so I suppose like any opportunity to be outside I've appreciated more I mean I always did appreciate a lot how important being outside was but now even more so I can still I can still go outside I can't really do mountaineering but I can still go out and so like the day before yesterday uh, I went with my nine-year-old daughter and we walked for nearly 15 miles and um, just being out with her I think made it even more striking because she's just dis- discovering all these experiences for the first time mm-hmm. um, of like having a, a, a big day out in the mountains and and all the feelings that you have with that uh, just made it feel all the more kind of sort of striking for me especially because like the contrast of being inside just feels kind of like not so great <laughs> mm-hmm. so yeah very grateful for the ability to go outside and be in a wild place mm. cool what is next for you you mentioned that you're working on this nutrition uh video log that you're a video blog that you're going to put out are you working on any books or is, is your main focus on the video blog at this point? Um, I'd love to hear where people can find you and, and what you're up to. Yeah, um, I, well, I've spent quite a lot. Of, well, I was doing this master's degree and I spent a lot of time doing uh, study both in that and outside that and doing some research last year. Uh, so having sort of tried to balance that with my climbing for a wee while, um, I've actually just been trying to just climb as much as possible mm. uh, of mm-hmm. late. But also, I've been just getting back into the flow of just reading research. I, I spend a lot of time just reading papers, just reading scientific papers one after the other. Um, <laughs> so I quite often do that for a long time, and then that helps me to have ideas and observations that I think are interesting, and then, you know, try to. I usually write about them or film something related to that. Um, so I, I will keep doing more on, on my YouTube channel because, well, people seem to like the videos and I, and I like making them as well. Um, so I, I have said that I'll do some detailed nutrition ones and I, and I will do that. Um, but they just take, they take a fair bit of time to prepare if you if you really dive into the this, the research in, in, in a detailed way. And that, that's the way I'd like to approach them. So uh, I'll do that. But I haven't really been doing any writing other than other than videos. And aside from that, then I just I just want to climb, just do my projects. <laughs> um, yeah, and again, I'll, I'll link to your uh, YouTube channel in the show notes. I've, I've really enjoyed those videos. Um, I've seen quite a few of them and you're giving, you're creating a lot of value for people in those. And the topics cover everything from what we've talked about from, you know, fingerboarding and how you have improved so much in your own climbing to basically everything else that you're interested in, uh, taking care of elbow, golfer's elbow, tendonitis, things like that, and um, how you approach some of your outdoor projects and and whatnot. So that's a really good resource for people. And I'll link to all that in the show notes. Um, I think that's all I got. <laughs> it's funny, before we got on the call, I, I was joking. I blocked out a massive chunk of time for uh, for the Zoom call, and I told you that we wouldn't use all of it, but here we are. <laughs> we used no, most of it. That's fine. Yeah, it's good, to, it's good to have a detailed discussion. I mean, I, 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 
um i like getting into these things in detail myself yeah 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 so that's cool hopefully um yeah people find it interesting to to think about well dave i've done more than 50 interviews in the last year doing this podcast and you were by far the hardest person to pin down for an interview. <laughs> yes, apologies for that. <laughs> and for good reason. You uh, you seem to be doing everything I could possibly think of and more, not only in your own climbing, but in your research and your writing. And uh, you're generating a lot of really good, helpful content for people. So I, I truly appreciate the opportunity to chat. This has been an incredibly interesting conversation and very well worth the wait so oh yeah no thanks very much yeah no i appreciate it it's been really good yeah thank you very much for your time today and uh thank you for all that you do it truly helps cool thanks <laughs> yeah oh well good luck with the, the podcast thank you appreciate it enjoy your steak <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes i will do yeah cheers man <laughs> <laughs> all right cheers Like we do it, like we do it, like we do it, like we do it, cause no one can do it.